Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Dr. Fiona Hill. Today, Dr. Hill is the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institute, but she's out with a new book called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Dr. Hill is one of the world's leading experts on Russia, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. She has written several books about Russia, including one that has been described as the definitive book for understanding Vladimir Putin. Based on her scholarship and widely recognized expertise, Dr. Hill has advised three different American presidents. From 2006 to 2009, Dr. Hill served President George W. Bush and then-President Barack Obama as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council, which is within what's known as the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. She then spent several years leading the Brookings Institute's Center on the United States and Europe, but she was called back to public service in 2017 when she was asked to be the Senior Director for Europe and Russia on the National Security Council under President Trump. It was during those two years at the NSC that Dr. Hill was witness to events that would later make her famous. When President Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives in 2019, Dr. Hill was asked to testify. Her testimony was a thunderbolt. It was enormous news because it helped explain a key part of the political maneuverings that led to President Trump's call with the president of Ukraine, but it was also so memorable for what it revealed about Dr. Hill, her intellect, her directness her confidence in the face of attack, and the moral bearings she brings to her work. I should note that testifying at the impeachment hearing was not the only trial she had to endure. During her time serving the country while in the Trump White House, Dr. Hill was the target of lies and gaslighting by her colleagues. She was undermined in her position privately and publicly. She was threatened with firing. She received death threats once her name became public. I hope you hear in the conversation that follows why I respect Dr. Hill so deeply and believe she represents the qualities that staffers should strive for and why it's so important that we talk to someone like Dr. Hill today on January 6th, the first anniversary of the attack on our Capitol. She is an expert in her field. She is calm and incisive under pressure. She's committed to maintaining personal and professional integrity and she is protective of this country and the institutions it relies upon. I should note, she did it all from a background that was a long shot. She's the child of a coal miner and a midwife from a small town in Northeast England who started working odd jobs at the age of 13. Through her intellect and her effort, and, as she says, support from many other people as well as support from government policies that made affording her education possible and some plain old good luck, She has, quote, a personal story that is a testament to the power of social, economic, and geographic mobility. I recorded this episode with Dr. Hill on Monday, December 6th. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Fiona Hill, welcome to Staffer. Oh, thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. It is wonderful to have you here um, and so important to have you here today. Um, I wanted my listeners to hear from you on January 6th, the anniversary of the horrible attack on the Capitol. You've written a book called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And it uses your life story as a device to talk about the uh, importance of expanding economic opportunity and the real perils that we are experiencing today because opportunity is not everywhere. 
So I typically start anyway with, you know, at the beginning uh, of, of my guests' lives, learning a little bit about where they grew up and what their parents were like. That is what your book is about. So could you start there for us? Yes. I mean, I grew up in the northeast of England in a small town, Bishop Auckland, in a region called County Durham that was synonymous with coal mining and is no longer. Uh, basically, coal mining in County Durham went back to the Roman era. Um, this is also the outer frontier of the Roman Empire, which is kind of a little weird to think about, actually, because you don't kind of think about outer bits of Britain as being part of uh, part of Rome. But, you know, it was one of those <laughs> strange places. Yeah. And uh, obviously, coal mining really took off as the mainstay of the Industrial Revolution. It was literally the fuel uh, for all of the industry that uh, came out of that. Uh, it was the spark for the development of railways, freight railways and passenger railways. My home area in 1825 inaugurated the first passenger railway um, uh, system in the in the world. It was uh, the place where the you know the steam engine was in- invented for carrying coal and moving coal. Uh, it was wow. the a place of steelworks and you know on the coast uh, shipyards and shipbuilding and. It was, you know, really, I would say the kind of Silicon Valley of its era in terms of being the center of innovation and uh, technological development for heavy industry. And then suddenly it wasn't. Of course, it wasn't that sudden. But, you know, for someone like me who was a kid, it seemed like everything had been turned on its head all of a sudden. Beginning in uh, really um, uh, the period of the 1960s. So when I was born, I was born in 1965. This was really the end of uh, heavy industry in the north of England. Some would say that actually the end was really after World War One, after World War Two. but anyway, from the perspective of someone who was a small kid growing up then, that was the period when everyone started to lose their jobs. The um, industry had been nationalised after World War Two as part of uh, the rebuilding effort uh, from the war when Britain had been cut off from uh, the rest of uh, the world for you know more than five years. Private sector owners couldn't uh, rebuild the businesses, so the government took them over. And I think that's also something that most, you know, Americans and others from the outside might not have realized that the state was heavily involved. And so the northeast of England, because it was this center of heavy industry and mass manufacturing, was essentially a state owned enclave within mm. the United Kingdom. And as the uh, industry started to get into trouble, uh, by the time we get to the period where Margaret Thatcher becomes the prime minister in 1979, she wants to do the modernization, the full-scale modernization of British industry. It's also you know, already apparent that those heavy industries have become non-profitable and wants to move Britain into the 20th century because we're still, in many respects, in the 19th century up in the northeast of England. Um, and... Um, that involves the mass privatization of the major industries. And, you know, my whole childhood is basically marked by the closures of these huge manufacturing plants that were no longer really profitable or were profitable, but, you know, with uh, a limited time and struggles with the unions. I went to university against the backdrop of a miners' strike in the UK, which was the largest industrial action in the United Kingdom after the general strike of the 1920s that had had the whole country out on strike. And my whole childhood, again, is scarred by mass unemployment, layoffs, the closure of uh, industry, and everybody's dad being out of a job. Well, and and to that point, it touched your father. He had been a coal miner, and then he had to work in a hospital, which he did for many, many years. You draw the title of your book from a conversation that you had with him. Um, Can you tell that story? 
Yeah, so as you said, you know, my dad had um, lost his job as a coal miner. He tried to work in the steelworks and he'd worked in the brickworks and all of those closed down as well. And eventually he became an orderly hospital porter in the local hospital, which became the main employer for the town. But as everything else closed down, it was the bottom rung of the economic ladder. And my dad really wanted me to get what he had not got, which was a full education qualifications. He'd left school at 14. There was an opportunity for me to not just finish school, but um, also to go to college, to university. The local education authority would pay for it, you know, as uh, as I was a child who'd be first in my immediate family to go to university. And also from such a low socioeconomic bracket, it would all be paid for. And my father was basically, you know, saying to me, well, look, if you get these qualifications and um, you have the chance of another job, he said, there's nothing for you here, pet. You're not going to be able to kind of come back here if you go off to college and you get a degree because there's nothing for you here. There'll be nothing uh, commensurate with these um, qualifications. You have to go somewhere else. You just have to think about that. And I was actually walking with my dad. I mean, I remember it very vividly because I always had these part-time jobs from age 11. I was always working somewhere because we just didn't have enough money. In this particular case, I'd got a job in one of the local bars. You know, I know that, you know, in the United States, people think you have to be 21. Well, in the UK, you know, it's a bit fudged. (laughs) (laughs) I was 17 and I was working, you know, in the local bar as a barmaid. And it was pretty rough, you know, and there was always like drunk, and fights and the hospital was opposite this bar and my dad obviously was quite well aware of at closing time people just had to put a fight and just over in the emergency room across the road and he would come and walk me back if he wasn't uh, working to make sure I didn't get caught up in a fight because I often had to break them up you know it's one of my uh, early um, roles in conflict resolution with drunken guys you know on the way out the pub and we were just walking home uh, and that's when we entered this in the conversation because my dad obviously didn't want me to be working in one of the local bars for the you know the rest of my life yeah so that well, was the that was the context and it was uh, it was really jarring i mean i never forgot it obviously and wove it into the title of the book because my dad was basically saying look you know there's you're going to have to go well it's it's both a heartbreaking uh statement and heartwarming i mean there's no greater statement of love right than to say to succeed daughter, son, you must fly away. Yeah, um, it's like the go west young man of the yeah. old, you know, kind of myth making of the United States and the kind of expansion. In this case, yeah. it was go just somewhere else, young woman. <laughs> right. Well, you you uh, you attended St. Andrews University in Scotland and later uh, you earned a second master's and your PhD in history from Harvard. Um, you are one of the world's leading experts on Russia. Um, your your career has been focused on Russia, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. One of your other books, Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, is regarded as one of the most important books for understanding Vladimir Putin. How did you come to specialize in Russia and that region of the world? It was that same time frame um, of the 1980s. So simultaneously with this great um, crisis in socioeconomic terms and personal terms in uh, the north of England with the closures of the heavy industry, it was also the middle of a war scare with the Soviet Union. So um, this was the period from 1977 to 1987 uh, of a crisis over the stationing of intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Europe by both the Soviet Union and the United States, the so-called Euro-missile crisis. And 
the, in the United Kingdom in that period, we were pretty convinced we were going to be ground zero for any kind of uh, nuclear exchange between the US and the Soviet Union. It did not make anybody feel very comfortable. The whole popular culture, all of the discourse was about this inevitability. It seemed inevitable. And in, in November 1983, as you know, we now know, because there's been declassification of all of these materials, the United States and the Soviet Union came very close because the Soviet Union misread a whole series of uh, US... Uh, maneuvers and uh, training exercises and thought that the US was preparing for a first nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. And there was even, you know, declassified later a letter uh, or an announcement, a speech by the Queen of England who would have been saying, you know, my my fellow Brits, I'm so sorry you're basically sitting in a a fallout shelter. (laughs) Who would have thought it would have come to this kind of thing? It's been, you know, it was later um, released. And, um, you know, my whole childhood, uh, or like my teenage years, because this is starts really in 1977 when I just started a high school, was really shaped by this sense of impending doom. And uh, many people were belonged to the campaign for nuclear disarmament. I had a cousin of my mother's, who I describe in the book, who was a Greenham common woman, which is basically this group of women who went to set up a peace camp around a, a Royal Air Force base in the south of England, uh, where nuclear uh, missiles uh, were being stored and you know for uh, you know potential use um, on military aircraft. And so um, everything was being uh, shaped and uh, everyone's perspective is being affected by this. And so I decided to study Russian and try to figure out what was going on. And I had another relative, uh, my uncle Charlie was actually my father's cousin, but he was a much older relative and the convention in the north of England to call everyone uncle and aunt if they might be vaguely related, <laughs> a lot older than you. And in the north of England, they generally are related to you one way or another, so it's a good chance, you know, <laughs> it's like that they're your uncle and aunt. So my uncle Charlie, who had fought in World War II and been in the Merchant Marine and had uh, been part of the convoys uh, that were basically taking vital supplies to the Soviet Union during the height of World War II when we were allies, basically said to my dad one day, look, your Fiona's good at languages, because I've been studying French and um, German at school. And he said, she should go and study Russian and figure out why the bloody hell they want to blow us up. What happened? How do we go from allies to enemies? And I thought to myself, yeah, I should. I should do that. I've been thinking, what shall I do? And of course, you know, it's a better thing to kind of face your fears in a practical way than just, you know, sit around panicking that you're going to get blown up in a nuclear exchange. I thought, you know, maybe I could become an interpreter. Maybe I could maybe go and work for the British Foreign Office, you know, lowly level position. I was not thinking, you know, kind of big here. I was just thinking maybe I could help facilitate something, you know, along the lines. And so I set off and I thought, okay, I'll go study Russian. And the timing was amazing. Because it's 1984 that I go to university in St. Andrews. Of course, there's George Orwell. There's all this other stuff going on. George Orwell's book about 1984, sure. Big Brother. Yeah. Everyone's thinking about it. In 1985, on comes Mikhail Gorbachev and everything changes. And after that, it just becomes a wild ride for me because timing was everything. Yes. And I, you know, I picked a topic that miraculously, and like most other people who go off to university and study something, I'm still working with it. You know, who would have yes. thought that that decision in 1984 to study Russian at St. Andrews would lead to you know, where I am now. It, it is so relevant today. And I think it's relevant, as you describe in your book, in a way that not many Americans recognize. You point out that Russia, in many ways, is a ghost of Christmas future, in your words, in the book, for the United States, a harbinger of some things that could come if we don't take corrective actions. How is the United States similar to Russia? And what mistakes do you see us repeating? 
Well, obviously, there's some major differences. So, you know, before I go down this path, I don't want people to think, oh, my God, you know, she's making this kind of equivalency with Russia. But it's really in the nature of our politics, of how divisive they become and how partisan and really the structure of some of our institutions. So, you know, the United States Constitution begins with the preamble, we the people of the United States. We're supposed to be, well, we're a republic and we're a representative democracy. And there's supposed to be a lot of checks and balances in the system. And, you know, the executive branch and the executive of the president is supposed to be that. It's a branch. It's another branch of government. It's not just one person. There is nothing in the Constitution other than checks and balances to prevent, you know, the rise of a powerful individual. The um, founding fathers didn't really quite envisage the party system as it is now, but they did embed a number of peculiarities in our system. And this is kind of where the problems arise. So Russia is a, a single uh person state at this particular juncture. The Russian constitution puts the president as a person above everything else. In many respects, uh, the president in, in Russia, since the uh, constitution that was passed in the 1990s, is a constitutional autocracy. That's how it's come over time. The president isn't even embedded in the party system. So that's directly elected by the people. Well, actually, so is the US president, if you think about it, right? And the checks and balances on the Russian president are the constitution. That's pretty much it. There's not really any parliamentary oversight. The president can't really be removed. Uh, the, um, the judiciary, you know, all of the other functions in Russia are quite weak. And this is a factor of uh, really the presidency of Vladimir Putin. He came in in 2000 after a period of upheaval after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they, we have the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union in December of 2021. So, you know, we're already just past the 30th anniversary of uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And in the 1990s, there was this amazing upsurge of a much more pluralistic system, which had been begun under Mikhail Gorbachev of trying to open everything up. The Communist Party was no longer the um, overarching party. Other parties emerged. Uh, there was, you know, efforts. Well, there's mass privatization, which actually led to very similar developments to what I saw in the United Kingdom, which was huge layoffs and millions of people suddenly find them themselves dislocated. But there really was this kind of upsurge of political activity, pluralism, and the prospect of a of a future. But there was so much chaos as well, and the ec- economic collapse that um, by the time we got to the end of the 1990s, not only had Russia kind of lost its place in the international environment, but it also seemed to have lost its place domestically. And Vladimir Putin comes in as the successor to Yeltsin, handpicked, and said he's going to make Russia great again. He's going to strengthen the state, but around the presidency, and you know, really make it a kind of a supercharged presidency. And then he's going to put the country you know, back on top again. And over that period of 21 plus years that uh, Putin has been the president of Russia, he's rolled back a lot of the freedoms. The political parties have kind of disappeared. Uh, the Only the constitutional court is kind of out there as a frame for him and is very political. And uh, all of the other checks and balances and independent judiciary never really took off. And there's no real checks and balances in the system. And everything is geared on what is this almost like a direct democracy of the election of Putin. He legitimates himself through direct elections. This is starting to sound familiar, right? Mm-hmm. Because we saw under um, uh, Donald Trump a similar phenomenon emerging. Yeah, Trump said repeatedly that you know the presidency stands alone as the person of the president because the president is the ultimate uh 
figure in the system, commander-in-chief, head of state, chief executive. There's no other check and balance in our system now. The party system is not a check and balance because Trump wasn't part of the Republican Party establishment or even part of the Republican Party. He kind of hijacked it and then negated it. So there is no uh, Republican Party under uh, only the party of Trump. And of course, everything that happened all the way through the course of 2020 from the first impeachment trial onwards, and especially the events of January 6th of 2021, put into question you know, the whole future transfer of power, but also the role of the states, uh, courts, and state election committees as independent acts of the checks and balances, congressional oversight of the presidency. And that's where I say that the, Russia is um, a, a ghost of Christmas future. It's the way that that presidency turned in Russia to become a kind of constitutional autocracy. And Donald Trump definitely sought to turn the American presidency into something like that. And he's still there claiming, you know, the right to return because he says, of course, that he was never, uh, let's just say, um, removed in the first instance or certainly not uh, legitimately from his perspective. So you served three different presidents in the national security apparatus. And you have this beautiful passage in your book where you describe many of your fellow staff members and the National Security Council and, and in, in the broader intelligence community. And in another section of the book, you talk about one of the um, really most dangerous uh, outcomes that you observed during uh, the Trump administration was the demonization of the idea of public service and independent right. expertise. And I really, I fear that as well. This is this podcast is an ode to staffers and and right. the value that they bring to our institutions. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you observed there and what you think we might need to change course? Yeah, I mean, what I observed there was very disturbing because it was kind of an, a, a, a negation of the whole idea of public service, that people could step forward to uh, want to serve the country. There was an emphasis on elections and everybody being elected. And yet, well, you know, when we think about expertise, we don't elect our doctors. We don't elect our the pilots of planes. You know, there are all kinds of crucial roles that are not elected. We might elect the fire chief, but we don't go out there and elect uh, all the fire um, personnel, for example, or the EMTs. We might elect a mayor, but, you know, all of the other functions within, uh, a, you know, the uh, a city, for example, municipal functions are usually carried out by specialists, people have trained. Yes. So this t- bringing that to the idea that, you know, people are radical and elected bureaucrats, the idea that we're all, you know, kind of uh, in essence politicised and that we don't, we're not representative of the broader population. This is kind of the perils of populism here is, is really a very dangerous uh, direction to be on. So, you know, Trump kept talking about the deep state, deep state unelected bureaucrats, deep state stiffs. He got me one you know, kind of recently in some, you know, proclamation when my book came out in October. Um, it's somewhat absurd and comical, of course, but it's also deadly serious because Trump didn't see the value of the state and the state apparatus. You know, although, you know, as I would say to people, you wouldn't go to a doctor who's just, you know, kind of being elected and has, you know, kind of no qualification whatsoever. You certainly wouldn't get in a plane with a pilot who's just, you know, kind of flipping through the manual, has been elected by the passengers on the tarmac and is just trying to figure out, you know, the, the most likely person out of central casting to fly the plane. And yes. it's also this idea that the president is, you know, somehow the only pure expression of the people's will because of the direct election. I mean, the way this is one of the peculiarities of our system, not just the Electoral College, but the way that the president is elected. 
I mean, a lot of other systems are more disciplined within the party. There's kind of other mechanisms that lead to the you know election of the presidency, although in France and in Russia, there is the direct um, election of the president. But, you know, the part, the, there isn't vetting of the presidential candidates. I mean, anyone, you know, could, he could have run as an independent, but, you know, I could also see that Trump could have hijacked the Democratic Party as well. And at one mm-hmm. point he was a de- registered Democrat. There's no kind of uh, real mechanism there for, you know, basically your presidential candidates having to prove themselves to be fit. It's all more the norms. But when you get to public servants, people who are representative of people, because everybody I work with, as I said in, uh, in the book, comes from all d- diverse backgrounds. Uh, people who join public service um, are motivated to give something back to the country. They're often uh, from blue-collar you know, working class, middle class backgrounds, first pe- people in their family to go, go to college who feel very grateful. They're often veterans, people who have served in the military and maybe, you know, kind of basically uh, enrolled in the military right out of high school. You know, they're really people who are motivated maybe by generations of public services embedded in their family and in uh, their larger surroundings. And the, the whole idea that uh, pu- uh, public service uh, is uh, somehow not worthy is, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, disastrous for the future of the country yes. because it's really kind of what is rooted in uh, to the country and, what, and, and to making it work and to function. It's always been admired from the outside. That's right. And it, it is it is getting purchase because there's dry kindling out there in the country, as you sort of describe in your book, and that, and that dry kindling is a risk because of the absence of opportunity. As economic opportunity evaporates from from whether geographically or by demography, more you know dangerous ideas become attractive. Um, yeah, and people don't see their representatives close up. So one of mm-hmm. your issues about how do we fix this, and I try to talk about this in the book, is really kind, trying to kind of reinforce direct connections. So this kind of podcast, for example, for Staffer, you know, to try to introduce people to the kind of people who work in the government. We need to do much more of that. Maybe we need regular people, public servants, going out to, you know, kind of around the country talking about what they do, National Public Service Day, showing up in town halls and, you know, at school events, uh, public libraries, and just explaining what they do, because we do need to recruit more people into public service. People forget that the military is part of it, the postal service, yes, uh, you know, uh, nice. the National Park Service. The, the federal um, government is not just the federal, you know, top level senior executive service. It's people at all kinds of different levels. And people need to see that. It needs to be the small business administration getting out there and telling people what people actually do for you, how entrepreneurs depend on it. It's only when we have a government shutdown that people realize, you know, what people do. The Coast Guard, you know, the Customs Service. There are just so many things that need to be explained to people. And I think, you know, when people don't see the reflection of themselves in this, because public servants are normally faceless, it was only during the impeachment trial (laughs) that there was a bunch of us who were trucked out there, you know, to give um, evidence as fact witnesses. We need to make it, you know, uh, more clear to people what the government actually does for them. Now, of course, there is, you know, kind of some pushback on this because usually presidents and particularly President Trump want to take credit for this because they themselves have problems in getting elected uh, and re-elected. And so it's in their interest to take credit for things that are actually a massive team effort. And that was what we saw in the Trump uh, uh, administration, was Trump wanted to take credit for the work of everybody and, you know, kind of basically have everyone else either shafted, you know, totally, you know, these people are somehow working in opposition to me uh, or, you know, just not visible uh, in any way. 
Well, and so my last question for you is, in your book, you describe having worked for two presidents already, you were then invited back to work for President Trump, and you had misgivings. But given the findings that Vladimir Putin had interfered in 2016, and this is bipartisan, this is confirmed on a bipartisan basis by the Senate Intelligence Committee, this is all factual information, you decided, I need to go back in and serve the country. And at a certain point during your service, it became impossible. And there are people in politics today who I know are working for bosses that are not contributing to the public good, but they think, maybe if I stay, I can prevent worse things from happening. What is your advice to people who are struggling with that decision? Look, I think it depends at the level in which you're operating, right? So, you know, if if I had to go back and do things all over again, I would still join Mm -hmm. uh, the administration back in 2017. If it's the second Trump administration in 2024, I absolutely would not. You know, but that so that is kind of more of a question about what do people do at different levels? Well, look, I mean, there's still a country, you know, to run. There will be people who will suffer. But I think at the very top level of politics, it becomes uh, the kind of political appointee level is what I mean there. It becomes extraordinarily difficult mm-hmm. because, as we know, in the government, there are a mixture of uh, of people. There are the political appointees that head up a lot of the departments and agencies, and a lot of those positions were never filled, you know, during the right. time of uh, the Trump administration. And uh, difficult getting filled under the Biden administration, too. There's always those kind of problems. I mean, we really, I think, need to uh, address, do we really want to, you know, have that wholesale change every single time? Because, you know, you do lose, you know, not just continuity, but the thread of things that, you know, have obviously nothing to do with politics, you know, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, really ought to have had a steady hand and, and continuity in them. Uh, but, you know, there are also an awful lot of people who keep the system working. Yes. And, you know, if they are not there, you know, basically doing their jobs, the whole country literally will fall apart. That's right. And there still has to be people working in, uh, people would actually probably be thrilled if people weren't working in the IRS. But, you know, <laughs> there are places where people actually still, yes, and I think, oh, it's great, no taxes. But that means, you know, of course, then there's, you know, a country you know, functioning, there'll be no military, there'll be nothing else. And every time we get to, you know, the prospect of, a, you know, renewing the budget or, you know, kind of basically thinking about, um, you know, how we're going to keep the, the government funded, we end up in these, you know, dreadful, you know, teetering around on the abyss issues of kind of can we keep the government running. So, you know, for people that I think they have to uh, stay in place and really try to kind of keep themselves focused on the job. But I think I think for others of us who've been high up the hierarchy, we have to speak out. Yeah. And that's, you know, what I'm trying to do at the moment. I mean, people have to be thinking here that this is not about partisan fighting. It's not about one person. Again, the preamble to the Constitution is we, the people. How do we put the people back in? And, the, you know, the, the United States is supposed to be for the people as well. That's so, right. you know, it's not just for a particular individual and their power. It's, you know, how do we keep this plane, using that metaphor again, flying here, you know, That's with the right. passengers? And so, you know, th- this is our dilemma. And I think only it's only by, you know, f- keeping talking about this, figuring out how we can mobilize ourselves at different levels uh, to, you know, keep on pushing forward that uh, we're going to make any change. And I argue in the book for a lot of mobilization at different levels. I'm not advocating that everyone should run for Congress, but I'm thinking that everyone should certainly get in touch with their congressperson and remind them why they're there. They took That's an right. oath of office for their constituents, not just a you know kind of 
getting themselves in a position that they can play games at everybody else's expense and power games. They're supposed to be representatives. They're not then in some special elite um, uh, function as a result of this. And it's the same with the president. We have to figure out ways of, of uh, keeping them accountable. That's right. And I think a lot of mobilization at different levels, people going into community work, social, you know, um, uh, programs, you know, for example, reinvi- uh, reinvigorating our social capital and our civic engagement, state and local government. There's many ways in which people can get involved and have their voices heard, uh, not least, of course, going out and voting and trying to uh, make sure that we still have access to voting That's around right. the country. The book is outstanding. I highly recommend it. It's called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Dr. Hill, thank you. Uh, Thank you for coming on this show, but much more importantly, as a citizen, I so appreciate your expertise, your integrity, and your commitment to the enterprise that is our country um, at, at, at risk of great personal loss, um, which you did and, and, um, I can't thank you uh, deeply enough. No, well, thank you so much, Jim. And look, contrary to the title of the book, which was obviously supposed to evoke something, there is something for me here in the United States. There's something for all of us, and I just want to make sure <laughs> that that continues. So that was also part of the exercise of, uh, of writing the book. And thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. I want to thank you all for listening to The Only Show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.